Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us um, see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. One of the life threads that's woven into the fabric of the scriptures is this profound revelation that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He brings the proud low, and he exalts the humble. Caesar Augustus, whom Bill mentioned last week, was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And some of his contemporaries considered him to be the savior of the world. Because during his reign, he was able to establish a period of relative peace known as the Pax Romana. And because of that peace and stability, people were speaking of him in this manner. And because he had also begun to give his adopted father divine heirs, as it were, that he was God, that would make him the son of God. But had Caesar Augustus been there at the stable to see Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus lying in a feeding trough, that's what a manger is, I don't think that he would have seen the beginnings of a kingdom that was going to outlast not only his kingdom, but every other worldly kingdom. It wasn't revealed to him. He didn't see it. But it was revealed to these shepherds, these peasants who were close to the bottom of the social ladder, illiterate, ignorant, poor folk. They had the kind of job that a worldly person would ridicule and mock. Like today, we might mock a janitor or someone who works at a fast food restaurant. But to them, it was granted. They were the first to know about, besides the inner ring of the family, of course, they were the first to know about the birth of the Messiah. God revealed it to them. 
And by the way, for those who would dismiss the Gospels as just being the stuff of myth or as the stuff of legend, they need to consider this passage a little bit more carefully. Now, it is true that a myth maker wouldn't hesitate to make use of an idea like a virgin birth. And they did make use of it, nor would they hesitate to make use of something like a vision of angels. But someone writing a myth or a legend would not have the chosen child born to a couple that were virtually unknown in a stable visited by these low-level peasants who find the child lying in a feeding trough for animals. That is not the stuff of legend. And by the way, we need to point out that the significance of the manger or the feeding trough is that it served as a sign to the shepherds. That's key to understanding this passage. They needed to know which child was the right child. And so the angels told them, when you go to Bethlehem, he will be the one that's lying in the feeding trough. Then you will know who the Messiah is. It's that child. But even though this story isn't what I would call a legend or a myth, it certainly isn't inconsistent with the Old Testament. You may remember that the greatest king, arguably, of Israel in the Old Testament is King David. And King David was what before he became king? He was a shepherd. In fact, when Jesse comes to anoint the king, or pardon me, Samuel comes to anoint the new king, Jesse, David's father, didn't even think it was necessary to show David to Samuel. David is just the runt of the family. He's the little shepherd boy. We don't even need to bring him because he's not going to be the one. And by the way, Samuel was misled in this way, too. When he saw Jesse's first son, he saw that this handsome, tall man, he thought, this has got to be it. This has got to be Israel's new king. And that's when God tells Samuel those powerful words. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. David would become Israel's king. But all this time we've been speaking about the humility of the shepherds and one of the important revelations that's given to us in this passage is a window into the humility of Christ, which is very powerfully elaborated in the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Philippians. This is Philippians chapter 2, if you want to follow along with me this morning. I'm going to read verses 5 through verse 11, Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul tells us a little bit about the mind of Christ. Beginning with verse 5. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, some translations translate the word servant, which here in this translation is slave. And I actually think slave is a better translation for us because when you live 
in a modern American democratic society, when we hear the word servant, you think of someone that you hire to clean your house on the weekends. Or you might think of someone in the service industry, like a plumber or a mechanic. But these people have the same basic rights that all of us have. And the whole point of this passage is that Jesus gave up his rights. Though he was equal to God, he was co-eternal, uncreated, equally divine with God. He gave up his rights and he took the form of a slave. And instead of coming here and demanding that we serve him, he served us. As the evangelist tells us, the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He humbled himself. And this is a passage that I try to remind myself of whenever I feel I'm getting frustrated because I feel like I don't, I'm not getting what I deserve. I'm not getting my rights. I try to remember that that was not the mind of Christ, that love does not insist on its own way. And he became obedient to the point of death on the cross, that powerful picture of God's son getting what he did not deserve so that, in a sense, we could get what we do not deserve. But because of this, we read on in verse 9, therefore... God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God exalts the humble. It's the paradox of spiritual prosperity that, in a sense, we go up higher by making ourselves lower. It's sort of the opposite of how you get material prosperity, by and large. Not necessarily because you could, of course, inherit a great fortune. It is possible. But usually, if you want to move up in the world in terms of material prosperity, how do you do it? You do it through ambition. You do it through competition. And unfortunately, in the scramble, we often forget the things that we really want. What do you really want? You want joy. You want peace. You want hope. You want love. And these things are the things of spiritual prosperity that God gives to those who humble themselves like Christ did. That take on the mind of Christ. When Christ said, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, you turn to them the left cheek. If someone sues you for your shirt, you give them your shirt and your coat as well. If someone compels you to go one mile, you go with them too. It is in direct opposition to worldly wisdom that tells you, you have to look out for number one. You have to fight for your rights. And there may be some of you this morning who thinks that there's something to be said for that. And that may be, but all I want to point out is that was not the mind of Christ. That's this passage. The mind of Christ was, I'm going to take a form of a slave. I'm going to serve. God exalted the humble. But God also guided the shepherds. Coming back to the shepherds now in Luke chapter 2. Not only were they favored with this brilliant revelation from heaven. 
They were told who Jesus is, but then God guided the shepherds to the child. Now, I can't help thinking I am not the only person who has thought that wouldn't that be nice if every once in a while we could have that same kind of guidance. I mean, I'm not saying that I need to play by play of every day of every week of every year of my life, but wouldn't it be nice if we're in that position where we just don't know, we are wondering, what does God want from me? Where should I go? What should I do? Wouldn't it be nice if Gabriel could just come down and lay it out glass smooth and say, this is what God wants you to do, so go and do it. Well, interestingly enough, the Bible talks about how we can have assurance of God's guidance. The Bible does give us an answer to that question, although it's not necessarily the answer you would expect. And it's told to us in Isaiah chapter 58. Last time I preached, I was looking at Isaiah chapter 57. This morning, I want to look at Isaiah chapter 58, and we're going to park here for a little bit on this issue of God's guidance. And if you look at Isaiah chapter 58, beginning with the second half of verse 9, and in fact, in many of your Bibles, the first half of verse 9 will probably be separated uh, from the second half of verse 9 by a little space. At least it is in mine. And I want to begin reading at that second half of verse 9. The prophet tells us, if you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually the lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden like a spring of water whose waters never fail did you catch that at the beginning of verse 11 and this is what the prophet tells us he says first of all you need to remove the yoke. Now, yoke is not a word that we use very often here in Ridgecrest, California. Maybe they do in Bakersfield. I don't know. They farm a little more in Bakersfield. But basically what he's talking about is oppression. Those who are exploiting and using people for their own selfish benefit. And though I might not be in a position to where I have people working under me that I can overwork and underpaid to make myself more wealthy, I still need to ask myself the question, am I demanding too much from my wife? Am I demanding too much from my children? Am I demanding too much from the people I work with? Am I exploiting people or using people for my own personal benefit? I have to... Look at that. As a pastor, we have to ask the question, are we burdening the congregation? Because Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that's the only yoke that we should be placing upon anyone, is the yoke of Christ. Then he goes on to say, we need to remove the pointing of the finger and the speaking of evil. Now, this is something that comes so 
naturally to us as fallen human beings, that it takes a miracle for us to even become aware of the fact that we're doing it in most cases. I venture to guess that many people, when they are pointing the finger, accusing, and finding fault, do not even recognize that they're doing it. Even though all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Why is that? Why are we so eager to find fault with other people and so unwilling to praise and encourage other people? Generally speaking, I mean, if you think about it, you think about that ratio, the ratio of pointing the finger and fault finding to praising and encouraging. What does that look like in my life? And I think there's two things that we forget about that are very important that are matters of faith. And the first of those two things is this, that God loves me not because of who I am, but because of who he is. In other words, God, in a sense, you could put it this way, doesn't love me because I'm worthy of his love, but he loves me in spite of the fact that I am not worthy of his love. That is how God loves me, and I need that love from God. This sounds so obvious and so straightforward, yet ask yourself the question, do you really believe that? Because I think there are a lot of people that have a hard time accepting that, that God genuinely loves them like that, that God genuinely loves me even though I am what I am. It takes real faith. And like I said, we need this love from God. Just as much as we need food to replenish our body, we need to know that God loves us in this way, and we need to know that we are being loved by God in this way. But... What naturally follows from that, and we often don't put two and two together, is that God loves other people in the exact same way. He doesn't love them because of who they are, but because of who he is. You know, when we point the finger, oftentimes I think subconsciously the suggestion starts to creep in that God disapproves of the same people I disapprove of. And God is displeased with the same people I am displeased with. And you know what? That is one of the most deadly attitudes that we can possibly adopt towards any person. That is a grievous mistake on our part. When I am dealing with someone that rubs me the wrong way, I have to believe that person is a child of the same father. I have the same father. Jesus Christ died for him or her just like he died for me. And it's only when we realize that God loves us because of who he is and God loves other people because of who they are. We will be secure enough not to lash out when someone hurts us, when someone rejects us, because we have our security based on that rock of God's love. God accepts me. God loves me. He may not approve of everything I do. I mean, my wife loves me and accepts me. She doesn't approve of everything I do. But it's there, and we have it with God, and so does the rest of us. Then he goes on to say, If you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted. 
And there's been a glaring omission in my sermon up to this point that some of you may have noticed, and that is I have not yet quoted from C.S. Lewis. And I quote from just about every time I speak, and so I want to correct that now. Uh, He said in answer to the question, how much should we give? He said the only safe response to that question is we should give more than we can spare. And what he meant by that is there ought to be things that we would like to do, and yet we can't do it because our giving prevents us from doing it. There ought to be things that we would like to have but that we don't have because our giving prevents us from doing it. Now, by the way, I am not limiting this to tithing. There are plenty of ways you can give to people who aren't even Christians we can be giving because God sends his reign on the just and the unjust. There are plenty of charitable organizations, but just in our everyday life, there are people that we know, that we talk with, that we meet. Are we offering our food to the hungry and satisfying the needs of the afflicted? And I don't want to lose the forest because of the trees here, because remember what we were talking about. We are talking about this issue of God's guidance. That's what we're talking about. And according to the prophet, if we want to have insu- if we want to have assurance of God's guidance, this is how we must live. We have to stop finding fault and speaking evil of others. We have to stop oppressing others. We have to start satisfying the needs of the hungry and the afflicted. And if we do these, God will continually guide us. We think back at these shepherds. They had no pretensions of greatness in their life, to be sure. These shepherds had been doing what they were doing for a very long time. They had no expectation that they were going to be visited by the angels. And I'm sure they had no notions of being superior to anyone else. Day by day, just doing their work. And God exalted those humble shepherds. Caesar Augustus. The man of the world, the man of the world who was sought to be savior of the world, he didn't get it. But these shepherds got it. God exalted them, and then God guided them. He took them to the Messiah so that they could see him with their own eyes, so that they could know Jesus Christ. And I just want to end by saying this morning that According to the Bible, and I say this often, but I repeat it often because it seems like it takes it a while for it to stick with some people. The Bible defines eternal life as knowing Jesus Christ. You see, we often think about it in terms of living forever. But according to Scripture, this is what our goal should be. That living forever gains us nothing if we don't know who Jesus is. People in hell presumably will live forever. That's not the point. The point is knowing Christ. That's what eternal life consists in. Let's pray. Good Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beautiful day that you've given us. We thank you for the hope that you've given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would open our eyes to who you are And that you would grant us the faith to love others in the way in which you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.